This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. We've been suffering through the dog days of summer after a brief tease of cooler weather earlier this month, but autumn will soon be upon us. Already a few leaves are beginning to fall here and there. Things have been fairly quiet at Cultural Debris HQ. There was a bit of personal excitement when a hummingbird joined the cast of patio birds, most notably the cardinal and titmouse couples. I've tried a hummingbird feeder to lure them in off and on, but this little beauty came in unbidden. He, or she, has stopped by multiple times now, so I'm hoping for regular appearances. I appreciate the continued support of listeners. Numbers are up, so I know there are new listeners out there. I would invite you to support the Cultural Debris Patreon, and also to leave a five-star rating and positive review on Apple Podcasts. Most recently in a review, listener Peyton called Cultural Debris a, quote, lovely podcast and enjoyable listening. I appreciate the kind words, Peyton. The Good Fathers over at Clerically Speaking, one of my favorite podcasts, gave a nice plug for Cultural Debris on their most recent episode. If you are visiting from there, thank you for stopping by and welcome. If you are not a listener of Clerically Speaking, I recommend it highly. Recently arrived for the book pile is Victor Homer, Artist and Craftsman by John Rothenstein. Homer was an artist, printer, and typographer who's best known for his creation of the Homer Uncial typeface. You've seen it, whether you were aware of it or not. Homer was a native of Austria who fled at the beginning of World War II. He ended up in Lexington, Kentucky at Transylvania University, was really the godfather of private presses in central Kentucky. He designed the seal of the city of Louisville and also became friends with Thomas Merton. Rothenstein himself was the director of the Tate Gallery in London and the son of noted artist William Rothenstein. John taught art at the University of Kentucky some years prior to Victor Homer coming here and he met his wife here and was married here. All roads lead to Lexington. As I looked through the plates in the book, I noticed an altar cross Homer had made for a chapel he designed in Europe. The next day, I attended Mass at the Newman Center on UK's campus and discovered they had their own version of the cross in their Adoration Chapel. Quite a treasure. Our poem is from the Persian poet Rumi who was also born in what is now Afghanistan in A.D. 1207. The Gifts of the Beloved Where will you find one more liberal than God? He buys the worthless rubbish, which is your wealth. He pays you the light that illumines your heart. He accepts these frozen and lifeless bodies of yours and gives you a kingdom beyond what you dream of. He takes a few drops of your tears and gives you the divine fount, sweeter than sugar. He takes your sighs, fraught with grief and sadness, and for each sigh gives rank in heaven as interest. In return for the sigh, wind that raised tear 
clouds, God gave Abraham the title of Father of the Faithful. My guest is former Ambassador Alberto Miguel Fernandez. Alberto served as U.S. Ambassador to Equatorial Guinea and also served in various diplomatic roles around the world, including in Afghanistan, Syria, and Sudan. He currently serves as Vice President of the Middle East Media Research Institute. Alberto shares his early introduction to Russell Kirk's writings, his family's history with his native Cuba, his career as a U.S. diplomat, and thoughts about disappearing cultures around the world with his recent article in The Lamp magazine as a jumping-off point. This interview was recorded just prior to the rapid collapse of Afghanistan this past week, but Alberto discusses his time in Kabul and the role of the U.S. there. Plus, stick around for some book recommendations at the end. Ambassador Alberto Fernandez, welcome to Cultural Debris. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on with you. You know, when I look over your um, your chronology of your career, it seems like that you've been dispatched to, to virtually every hot spot of the past twenty five years. I, what what did you do to uh, to warrant that that honor, or did you make somebody mad? Um, you know, I've asked that my I've asked that question uh, many times. Certainly, my wife has asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, why couldn't you get a normal assignment in a nice place? But uh, I've enjoyed the places I've worked in. Well, I think that uh, that you've uh, you've certainly chosen, uh, as they say, uh, an interesting time uh, to be a diplomat and be in those places. And I want to talk. Uh, a little bit more about those later on, because you've got places like Kabul and Khartoum uh, that uh, that kind of jump out to um, I think to anybody <laughs> who's scanning that. But I, I think the the first uh, the first time that I ran across you, it was because of Russell Kirk. I know that, that I think that you and I share a, an appreciation for Dr. Kirk, and I was curious how you first uh, were introduced to his writings and and what you've gained from them. You know, I've gained a lot from them, uh, and I, I probably came to them in a kind of uh, odd uh, sequence. Um, uh, I actually came to Dr. Kirk, reading Dr. Kirk first through his ghost stories. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, growing up uh, as a kid, as a young man, I was very interested in, you know, fantastic literature and fantasy and horror and adventure. and. Uh, so I first read some of those stories. It was captivated by his uh, his uh, uh, freedom fighter slash um, uh, uh, anti anti devil fighter uh, Manfred Arcane character. <laughs> right. Uh, so that's where I first read uh, anything by Doctor Kirk. Uh, but shortly thereafter, you know, the first thing I read obviously was the conservative mind, which had a tremendous influence on me as a as a young man. And in fact, I, by that time, I was a young American diplomat uh, and certainly had a lot of uh, influence on my kind of more mature um, understanding of the world. 
so so that's been the progression. And then everything else came after that. But it was it was first the stories, uh, then the conservative mind, and then and then everything else. It provided a, a really great framework for me because, you know, growing up in South Florida as a Cuban American, a Cuban exile, I came to the kind of the anti-communist uh, part, you know, the kind of our enemies, the Reds part. But uh, but the other part of 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 kind of what one believes in, which is what are you for, you know, what what are you defending as opposed to just what are you against? A lot of that came uh, through the writing of, of Dr. Kirk first and then, and then others. Right. And I think that, that that's a, a very good point to make, that Dr. Kirk points us in the direction of, of what it is we're actually conserving. And I think a lot of what, at least what is, what self-identifies as the conservative movement uh, sometimes lacks a clear vision of what it is they're actually supposed to be conserving. There's a, there's a lot of being against things, but not a lot of, of being for things. And Dr. Kirk, I think, uh, as you rightly point out, helps helps to answer some of that. You have uh, you sort of uh, began tracking the the career of Manfred Arcane, I think, with your uh, <laughs> with your adventures in in various places. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I haven't I uh, I never became uh, what is it minister without portfolio, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> But but I have been involved in uh, you know plotting against governments, so we share that we share that uh, <laughs> we share that thing in common. <laughs> well, it, he he clearly had a, a much bigger impact, at least maybe subconsciously, than you uh, uh, than you even than you even imagined. Uh, <laughs> you know, you you have an, you have an article uh, in a recent issue of the Lamp Magazine, which is a, a great uh, publication. I encourage folks to take a look at. Uh, and you talk about it's it's sort of a meditation, I guess, um, somewhat around the hook of these these Catholic cemeteries in Cairo, Egypt, but it's, it's got, I, I feel like a much bigger point than that. Um, you're talking about kind of lost civilizations, these, uh, these communities uh, that at one time thrived and were large, uh, even though, even though minorities, uh, but now are completely gone. Um, what, I guess, sort of what brought that to your mind and, and, and why are they gone? Well, I mean, I was struck by the, you know, the the, the physical remnants of it very powerfully, and certainly uh, moved by um, these people who existed, these communities that existed, and you know, in the in the piece I write about uh, Christian communities, you could have one could have written about Jewish communities as as well in in the Middle East, um, but uh, you know. Uh, these religious minorities that were, they were, they were merchants. They were, uh, you know, uh, working class people. They were humble people. They were not people with great power. Um, and they flourished. Uh, they first flourished tremendously. You see the remnants, not just in the cemeteries, which I talk about, but the churches that remain in Egypt, you know, the, 
the what we call the Latin churches or the Eastern Catholic churches are much larger um, than the communities that exist, very small communities exist today. I'm reminded of the Latin Cathedral in Heliopolis, a Cairo suburb, which uh, was built in 1913. And it's just a splendid, beautiful building, neo Byzantine style, and yet the community today is 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 tiny. Um, why were they lost? They were lost because of um, of um, intolerance and state power. You know the um, the banes, especially of the twentieth century. Um, you know the kind of uh, nationalist fervor that existed in Egypt at the time uh, against the other, right? Uh, wrapped in the language of anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism, but it was really hatred of the other um, and the the power of the state, you know, the overwhelming power of uh, leftist revolution, you know, long live the people, down with the enemies of the people, stuff that you've seen. I mean, I'm talking, in, when I write about it, I'm talking about Egypt, very special circumstances, but you could have written uh, one could have could write the same piece about, you know, um, uh, East Asians or Indians in uh, in Uganda or, um, you know, Chinese and Jews in um, in, uh, in in Cuba. Uh, you know, there are many examples of Armenians in, 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 in Turkey, et cetera, of uh, these communities that are caught up by, you know, violent revolution and these intolerant ideologies that crop up and are more often than not destroyed. No, of course we've, we've seen, and and I know that that you have greater insight on this than I do, but we've seen um, sort of the devastation, I guess, of, of Christian communities in, in places like Iraq and places like Syria. Uh, And that's really just happened you know, in the course of the of a generation, 20, 25 years, it seems like. What, uh, I guess, what has the U.S. done to contribute to that? Is, is that, are, are these communities lost like the Egyptian communities are? Or is, or is it, uh, you know, is it just a period in time when they, when they flourished and now it's gone? Uh, it, it, it certainly seems like a tragic loss. It is a tragic loss. I think that kind of diversity of, especially what you know, we kind of call the Mediterranean culture or the Levantine culture that existed of these, you know, uh, communities that were uh, multi-ethnic and multi-religious and that um, functioned. And there were there was a certain level of of, uh, of tolerance, not to you know, not to uh, romanticize it, but they you know, it it was something of value. Um, you know, the, the, who's to blame? I mean, there are certain conditions where the U.S. is to blame. I would say the U.S., for example, its role in Iraq had uh, uh, something to do with the the, the crushing of, um, of, uh, of religious minorities in, in Iraq. Certainly, that was something that was accelerated by the U.S. overthrow of Saddam Hussein, a brutal dictator who certainly deserved to be overthrown, but we inadvertently uh, played our role in the destruction of the Christian community in Iraq. There's no doubt about that. In other places, it's been other things. Uh, It's been uh, political Islam, you know, kind of the intolerance of jihadism, 
but in the the piece in the lamp, which is you know such a great publication, I felt so honored to to write for for them. Uh, it, these communities were destroyed by um, you know by uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, you know, in the 1950s, basically. Yes, there were trend lines before, kind of Arab nationalism, uh, revolutionary fervor, but it's Nasser that actually got rid of them. Uh, it was not the Islamists. It was not the Americans. Um, so there, you know, there's always blame to um, to uh, fingers that can be pointed at at why these things happen. But but often it's that kind of again very very pertinent what Dr. Kurt wrote about when he wrote about the importance of restraints on power. You know, the importance of of prudence. These were. Uh, uh, unrestrained act by tyrants uh, who, who, who wanted to destroy, you know, who rejected the kind of continuity of the past, of, uh, of uh, who wanted things to be uniform. Um, and that's, that's a real danger we see even in our world today. I think that uh, at least a theme that jumps out to me, and you've sort of touched on it here in our conversation, but a theme that jumps out to me in, in the different pieces uh, I read of, of things you had written is this sort of celebration of what we might call rooted cosmopolitanism in, uh, in these different places. You, you, have, you have these uh, religious and, and also ethnic minority populations that are in these different locales, but they're at home there. They're maybe not originally from there, although maybe some of them are, uh, but they are, uh, they are, they're doing well, they're thriving. As you point out, they're not necessarily powerful interests. They're just sort of normal everyday people. Uh, and yet they, they are, they're pushed out. Uh, how, how do we, I guess, how do we distinguish that kind of what I would consider kind of a conservative cosmopolitanism that ought to be celebrated with maybe a, a rootless sort of international cosmopolitanism that, that can be kind of destructive. Where, where's the line there? Well, I think that's an excellent question. You know, I, uh, I, you know, I've spent much of my career overseas and, uh, and I consider myself to be maybe, maybe riffing off Dr. Kirk's, um, a description of himself, I consider myself maybe to be something of a cosmopolitan traditionalist, in the sense that I I I love that kind of um, you know uh, complexity in these societies, but rooted in a kind of traditional view of the world and traditional view of societies, I would say that the difference between that and the kind of globalist rootlessness, which is promoted by our elites today, it, it, one is, is the kind of the question of scale, you know, uh, and also this question of kind of a, a voluntary and um, uh, nuanced I- existence, you know, it's, it's not about uh, you're, you're a machine, right? You're a widget, just like any other widget, and uh, you know your work can be done in China. You you have actually have no no value, and this place which you're at has no value in and of itself, right? It's just uh, 
it's just another place. America is just like any other place. It has no distinctiveness. It has no past. It has no rootedness, no no custom or convention or a continuity with the ancestors. And so these, you know, these communities, for example, in the quest, in question of Egypt or any of these other places, these are ancient communities. Um, you know, they were uprooted by modernity. It was a kind of, um, you know, it, it was a kind of break with the way that the past had been. So that I, I think that there is a kind of very clear differentiation you can make between uh, kind of the globalist, as I said, you know, kind of you're all the same. It doesn't matter. You know, you're you're you don't have much importance. The whole question of your, where you're from or or where your roots are don't really matter. And um, complex societies which are old and which go way back and which were cosmopolitan and complicated and had diversity in them, you know, as a kind of natural outgrowth of those societies. I mean, for example, when Nasser kicks out uh, um, uh, these minorities, one of the last minority groups to uh, to be kicked out are the, the, the famous... The Greek community in Egypt is forced out in the late 50s. The handwriting was on the wall, but they're forced out in the late 50s and early 60s. This is a community that goes back actually to antiquity. You know, there were Greeks there, obviously from the time of Alexander or before. Um, So the idea of Greeks in Egypt was not a new thing. It was not, um, you know, kind of just... um, last minute thing, but something that went way back that had roots in that society and that civilization. Right. I mean, in, I mean, in real terms, the, the Greeks had been in Egypt probably longer than the current Egyptians had been in Egypt. I, uh, I mean, they had been there for, there for so long and, and this, this met, it was really this Mediterranean society that Egypt was, was part of, um, in Antiquity. Yeah, they'd been and, there, and, they'd been there before Islam. That's right. There had been there there have been Greeks in Egypt before Islam, of course. You know, we're seeing now a uh, you mentioned the nationalism in Egypt. Of course, we're seeing a rise in nationalism around the world. Uh, India obviously is a, is a place that that comes to my mind, and obviously we're seeing it in in the U.S. as well. Um, particularly on the right. And I guess the question is, uh, how, I, how healthy is that for the right in, in view of this kind of, uh, this kind of rooted cosmopolitanism that we were talking about, wherein I think a lot of times the idea is to focus on maybe a opposition to this globalist mindset that you were talking about that's, that seeks to sort of make everybody the same. But at the same time, I think that, that uh, I guess, are there dangers then in U.S. nationalism towards that kind of rooted cosmopolitanism that that is, in fact, quite conservative and, and brings about a certain uh, texture to life that I think is, is good and desirable? Yeah, I think I think there's always um, 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 
you know, uh, kind of, um, uh, you can go off the deep end when it comes to any worldview. And uh, I, I, I consider myself a nationalist and I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm very much opposed to kind of, um, um, you know, um, this kind of globalist mentality that seeks to make us, uh, to crush us and to make us, uh, you know, kind of, again, part of an um, uh, economic system and part of, um, you know, kind of uh, destructive um, modes of living. But nationalism is, is, as John Lukash and others have written, is tremendous power. And it can be used in terrible ways, and it has been used in terrible ways in history. And so, so the challenge always is, you know, can you have a, a kind of a, a nationalist worldview, which is uh, has 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 guardrails, which has limits, which has prudence, uh, which is to a certain extent inclusive. Not inclusive in the sense like, you know, hey, everybody, come on in. You know, we're all the same. It doesn't matter what you believe in and uh, or what this country stands for or whatever. But but like anything else, um, you know, kind of an, an ideology can be used to crush, can be used to destroy. And so I would hope that as we kind of people who look at kind of nationalism as a defense against um uh, you know the the cathedral seeking to just crush us. That um, there's a kind of right and wrong, right way of looking at the kind of a national right. worldview. There's a way which is intolerant and which is stupid, um, and which can be you know extraordinarily destructive and violent. And there's other another nationalism maybe which is the nationalism of of protection of of including. Um, your community of strengthening your community of of d- defending yourself, but also uh, being wise in the way that you handle this tremendous power. In one of your pieces in the European Conservative, and I'll uh, also mention that I'll I'll link uh, those the articles I'm referring to in show notes, so people can can hop over there uh, from those links easily. Uh, you you touch on um, this idea of of the the Western propensity to I guess uh, handering over to uh, ultimately seek to sanitize its own myths and that this is something that's sort of unique to the Western mind. We don't see it in the, at least certainly in the same way in the rest of the world. In some in most of the world, we don't see it at all. Why do you think it is that we, that we as a culture have that mindset? And it's especially, of course, we see it sort of exploding right now. Well, I think I, I, I don't have any, anything original in this. I think others have talked about it as well. It's basically the kind of the, the successor ideology, which is coming up as a kind of a political substitute for religion. And so it, so it's a simulacrum of, of, uh, of, of especially of, of the Christian faith and maybe of uh, in, in the West in Anglo America of kind of a decline in uh, in mainstream mainstream Protestantism. So it's uh, you know woe is us we are unclean you know we have committed original sin we must be punished we are evil. 
um, uh, translated into you know into the the political realm and into the historical realm. Uh, to me, it's funny. You go to a place like Istanbul. There, they you know there are statues of slavers in Istanbul. There are sla- statues of imperialists in in Istanbul and in Cairo and in Damascus and you know take your pick. Um, and it's inconceivable that uh, uh, you know that that they would people there would kind of destroy these things. Uh, we see ourselves in a different way right now, right? We're uh, we're filled with the self loathing in the West, especially in um, in Anglo America. It's spreading in Europe as well, but uh, it seems to be spreading more slowly um, than. Uh, than it is in the United States, especially, and uh, it may be in Great Britain as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, you have a, a figure like Macron in in France who has who's made very strident statements against that kind of thing. You know, we're we're not we're not going to fall victim to that. We're not going to take down statues. We're not going to do that that sort of thing. It maybe it maybe in in many ways it there is kind of an anglo a particularly anglo element to that with with we see in US and and Great Britain. Yeah, there seems to be. Uh even a place like Spain, the far left in Spain has uh has attacked a, a couple of the statues of Columbus, but these are very small groups and um you know it's it's been very very limited. They haven't they haven't taken them down. Um, so um, um, it really does seem to be kind of uh, very much a uh, U.S. U.K. phenomenon, with with some you know spreading here and there. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. I want to shift gears a little bit. I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, your uh, your diplomatic career and of course you've you've touched on your own background uh, as a Cuban American wanted to go back to that and talk a little bit about your family in Cuba and and uh, the circumstances that brought you to America and then and then uh, kind of walk through maybe your your career as a diplomat How, what what can you tell me about uh, about your family in Cuba well um uh... As far as I know, my family's been in Cuba for, had been in Cuba for hundreds of years. Um, we're of peasant origin. My uh, my father's side come from a place called Pinar del Rio, in the countryside. And from my mother's side, we come from a place called Matanzas, massacre, massacre province, uh, called because of a massacre of Indians that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So I'm a peasant stock. My family was, uh, we're, we're part of the, you know, when people talk about revolutions and stuff like that, they're always the good guys and they're the bad guys. My right. family were part of the bad guys um, in, that, in the Cuban revolution in the sense that Castro and his types were seen as the good guys. And my family were part of the Batista regime. Um, of uh, the dictator Fulgencio Batista, and so when um, when he took over, when uh, the communists took over, my family fled. My uh, father had been free, briefly arrested by the regime, by the uh, by the revolutionaries. I think he was held just for like a day or something, and he was released. 
and fled. My grandfather, who had been a general in um, in the Cuban um, uh, police, in fact, he was commander of the national police from 1956 to 1958. He died in uh, in one of Castro's jails in 1968. Mm. So he served nine years of a 30-year sentence. So we fled, you know, all of us fled in 1959 and uh, came to Miami like so many others. And I grew up in South Florida. So I'm not ashamed of it. You know, people will say, oh, you know, Batista, evil. And I'm not pro-Batista, but, you know, that's that's my past and that's my uh, that's my family history. Well, and, and that uh, that Cuban-American community uh, in in South Florida was was very much, I guess, a parallel to some of those early other communities we were speaking about um, that that organically uh, planted itself there uh, and and has thrived in that area uh, as as a coherent community all these years. Yeah, and the 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 people that you know we we were the first wave, we were the ones that you know there's a. There's an overthrow of a regime, and the people of that regime leave, right? But what happened with Cuba is you had then waves of people who came. You had uh, people who had been with the regime, people who'd been uh, collaborators of the Castro regime, people who'd grown up and studied. So, you know, the people who came, you know, kind of my, although I was a baby when I came, but, you know, my uh, the, the wave of which I was a part of are actually a tiny minority of the Cuban exile community. Most of the people who, who fled Cuba are not part of the Batista regime. Most of them are, you know, were either non-political or actually they were they had they, they grew up under under Castro or even, uh, you know, collaborators or involved somehow with the uh, uh, with the regime in Cuba you know, to this day. Of course, we're seeing a lot of tumult down in, in Cuba right now in the past several weeks or a few months. What, what do you think uh, will come of that, if anything? And what, what do you think the prospects are for Cuba? Well, it's a fascinating thing, which is happening because what you're getting is you're getting uh, civil disobedience and turmoil by the underclass by people, especially young people, people who grew up under communism, who don't who don't know anything other than the current regime, uh, who are young, who are marginalized. Many of them are people of color, um, and who are virulently against the regime. It's not about COVID vaccines. It's not about food, although. You know, COVID vaccine and food are two of the issues that they people are concerned about. It's about basically they're tired of being repressed and being silenced after 62 years of the same guys, not the same party. It is the same party, but it's actually the same people um, who are still in charge or getting a bit long in the tooth. So yeah, it really um, is so remarkable. Yeah. So so the regime is, I think, lost all credibility. In, in, in my view, it never had credibility from day one. But uh, it's I think it's been unmasked before the world community as this sordid, sclerotic kleptocracy, which it is. However, 
it's a police state and it has a military and has a secret police. So even though I think it's um, uh, totally unmasked and undermined, the question is, you know, these, these nasty regimes can linger for decades. I think this is, as Churchill would have said, it's not the end, but maybe it's the beginning of the end. I think it's the beginning of the end. I hope so, certainly. Yes, I think I think uh, we can certainly hope that it is, and it, it does uh, it does certainly seem different than anything we've seen we've seen down there before. So I'll we'll we'll hope and uh, and pray for the best for the for the people there who've suffered a lot and continue to. Um, so how did how did you end up as a Cuban American in South Florida? How did you end up as a U.S. diplomat? Uh, shuttling around the Middle East? What uh, what led you to that? Well, growing up in Florida, I was, um, I liked to read. Uh, and uh, I was fascinated by the Middle East as a, as a teenager. Um, I was particularly moved or, you know, kind of a couple pieces of things that I read really marked me. Uh, Alan Moorhead a British, I think, or I think he may have been Australian, um, had a couple of books in the 1960s, the kind of popular histories, the Blue Nile and the White Nile. I believe it or not, I actually have have the White Nile jotted down in my notes uh, <laughs> uh, because I I read both of them and and was and was fascinated by them. Yeah, I read them as you know I was I don't know, 13, 14, 15. I read them and they they really influenced me. They really um, marked me and kind of you're not supposed to say these things these days, uh, but the the romance of the East is what appealed to me. You know, reading about you know people like Burton and uh, Burkhart and uh, James Bruce, uh, I, I found it fascinating. And also, I also I, I remember reading. Uh, Sir Walter Scott's The Talisman, where, you know, the heroic figure of Salahuddin, of Saladin, is there. So so I was, you know, 15, 16 years old. I was interested in the Middle East. And so growing up in South Florida in the 70s, there's not a lot of kind of Middle East stuff there. So I joined the military um, when I was 18 years old, the U.S. military, to learn Arabic. And I did. That's uh, that's where I first learned Arabic. Then went to college, studied Middle East history, got out and joined the Foreign Service, and the rest is history. So you you were reading in the White Nile about Khartoum, and of course your career takes you uh, takes you there. That's um, that's quite a quite an amazing feat, really. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's uh, funny. I uh, I I served. I worked on Sudan from Washington in the. Um, in the uh, uh, 1990 to 1992. And then later I was the uh, in charge of the U.S. Embassy there, um, you know, 20 years after that. So that was fascinating. And I also loved Burton, Sir Richard Francis Burton, the famous uh, writer and explorer. And coincidentally, I got to serve in two, two posts where he had served. He served in Damascus, which, uh, you know, which is... Uh, a very important, very interesting city. And he served, he was the Her Majesty's Consul in uh, the Gulf of Guinea 
on the island of what was then called Fernando Po, which is today called Malabo in Equatorial Guinea. That's where I was a U.S. ambassador to Equatorial Guinea. So coincidentally, <laughs> I'm still haunted. I'm still haunted by the White Nile. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and it it really is. It's been several years since I read it, but uh, it was. It was a um, sort of a fascinating page turner, uh, certainly, and and Khartoum uh, looms large <laughs> as uh, you know, sort of, uh, and and uh, frighteningly so, I guess. I love Sudan. Sudan is a fascinating country. It's uh, big. It's complicated. It's um, has all kinds of things, and um, so as as a diplomat, it was a fascinating assignment, especially if you're an Arabic speaker. Uh, it was a, a fascinating time. Hot as hell, but uh, but very pleasant and wonderful people. Very very interesting and uh, warm people. Well, you uh, you also ended up in Kabul um, not too long after the U.S. invasion. How how close uh, was it to the invasion that you were there? I was lucky. I was. Uh, it was the uh, 2002, so you know the invasion took place in late 2001, and I, I was lucky in that I was part of the first team that went in as a permanent staff of the embassy. So you know the 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 Taliban were overthrown. I think it was in November 2001, and then in uh, the spring and summer of 2002, in between they had temporary staff. But then the 2002, uh, the permanent staff of the new embassy came in. And I remember going into the embassy and the Marines were still inside the embassy. They were you know, living in the buildings. And mm. I remember them vacating one of the rooms, which became my office. So I was very fortunate. Many people have served in Afghanistan. But when we were there, it was you know, before the Taliban had revived. And it was much mm-hmm. more. Um, you could get out and see people. You could, you know, you could do things, uh, things that would be inconceivable to somebody who served there much later. You know, you'd go to do, you'd go things like to do things like um, trying to track somebody down and they're not there. You would leave a note <laughs> saying, <laughs> "This is Alberto from the American Embassy." I'll be back in two hours to see you. <laughs> this is something you would not be doing, you know, these days. Um, you know, you uh, sometimes there wouldn't be an embassy driver available to take you where you needed to go. And they'd say, well, you can drive yourself. And I would drive myself and, you know, on the way back from the university, stop by and, you know, buy a watermelon on the side of the road from some guy <laughs> You know, none of those things. Later on, of course, the security situation deteriorated that those things were not, you know, not allowed, right? Uh, those uh, those sure. things couldn't be done. I've been fortunate in that, you know, in, in the State Department, the Foreign Service, you specialize in different areas, right? Different, what we call cones. And, and I was what was known as a public diplomacy officer, which meant that generally my areas of responsi- responsibility were press, media, universities, culture. So it was great because it's something that I would I would have wanted to do anyway, which was right. deal with the kind of the uh, 
intellectual class, with artists, with poets, with uh, journalists. Um, and, and that was always, I think, really, really interesting to do in these different countries. What what do you think the prospects are for Afghanistan here twenty years later? Uh, from you know from somebody who's never been there, and I probably will never have the opportunity to go. It, it, they don't look great, but uh, but but you've had an insider's perspective. Yeah, I mean, look, they. I've written about this. Uh, I've written about my time there as well. Um, on paper, given what we invested the i think we spent 70 billion dollars on building the afghan military they should be able to defend themselves uh if if they can't uh part of that is not our fault part of it is our fault uh, i think we we kind of created uh you know we, we built in afghanistan or we invested in afghanistan in our own image or what we thought it should be like rather than what it is. And so if, if we were not able to build institutions working with the Afghans because if they were too crooked or too venal and we were too stupid, uh, that's on us and on the, you know, the Afghan ruling class. I feel, I feel terribly because I feel that we did intentionally or unintentionally some good but that's not the reason we were in Afghanistan. The reason we were in Afghanistan was to destroy our enemies. And uh, I think we we got distracted with, uh, you know, with empire building, with nation building. And uh, that's a problem. Um, it's a very expensive problem, which we've indulged in over the past few decades, which we're not going to be able to do anymore because we just don't have the money. Right. Well, and a, and a good reading of Russell Kirk would have uh, would have told them that they would be unsuccessful in uh, yes. in building in building another nation in our own image. It it just simply can't be done. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I know that you have uh, you have many adventures, some of which you probably can't share. Uh, <laughs> but I would be interested, and I think listeners would be interested in hearing. Uh, any uh, any stories that you that you might have had from your your time in uh, in those places that we've talked about or or others well the worst thing in the world is uh, is to ask uh, an an old diplomat if he has any stories because they have <laughs> they have they have too many stories um you know that's all they have um but uh i mean i would say uh you know kind of a couple of things um uh, that um, one learns, you learn from, uh, if you're open to the world, you can learn a lot. And I feel I've learned a lot. You know, I feel, for example, all the years, all the years that I spent in the Muslim world, I think at the end of the day made me a better Christian in the sense that I, I think that the, you know, the, 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 the positions or the, the worldview uh, of Islam is a powerful one. Um, it, it's one that is to be taken seriously. Um, I don't share it. If I did share the kind of the, the premises of Islam, I would become a Muslim. I would have been a Muslim. So I examined these premises and I rejected them. 
but it doesn't mean that I don't respect them or understand their power. So I, I often feel that the, you know, my interaction with the Muslim world certainly led to me understanding uh, the Muslim world better, but I think it also helped me understand myself better and what I believe in or what I think is, is true and what I think is important. Uh, as for adventures, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate in that I was, I worked mostly in these bad regimes, uh, you know, dictatorial regimes, um, uh, rotten, corrupt states, many of them. Uh, and you certainly learn about human nature. You learn about duplicity um, and about the way people survive under all kinds of, of, of situations. For me, my high, highlight of my 10 overseas assignments are two places I always talk about. One is Sudan. Uh, which I already mentioned, basically because of the, uh, the 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 contemporary history of Sudan was so interesting. So when I served there as uh, the acting ambassador, what we call charge d'affaires, was the time when Sudan was trying to be held together, when the the dictatorship, the Bashir regime, had made peace with the South Sudanese of the Sudanese People's Liberation Movement kind of SPLM, and kind of trying to hold together this country. Sudan is the size of the U.S. east of the Mississippi. That's the size of Sudan. Uh, and so it was a fascinating time as we tried to keep the, you know, Humpty Dumpty together, you know, uh, again. <laughs> um, uh, this huge country with a, a regime that was half Islamist, that was the Bashir part of the regime, and then half, you know, left-wing, nationalist, secularist, which were the, the Southerners, uh, and the Darfur problem. So it was just a lot of fun, really interesting work, you know, to go and drink tea in the middle of the desert under an acacia tree with, you know, rebel groups with their Range Rovers with machine guns lined up, you know, who had, you know, the Darfur rebels, that kind of situation. Uh, I, I really enjoy that. I enjoy being in the field. And that's a, that's a great part of diplomatic work if you enjoy that. So Sudan is a place that I really love. The other place that really marked me was Syria. Syria under Assad, under Hafez al-Assad, nasty regime, a terrible dictator. But in the cultural sphere, it was the time I was there, which was in the 1990s, was a time of great uh, cultural and intellectual ferment. So yeah, you had all kinds of, uh, in the Arab world, you know, so the regime was this brutal dictatorship. But when it came to culture, there was some political space. And so that was a really fascinating time. Uh, you know, to to interact with, as I said, with poets, with filmmakers and painters and actresses um, and and some big figures. I mean, people like uh, the Saudi exile writer Abdul Rahman Al Munif uh, lived in Damascus when I was there, or the the famous uh, 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 scatological Iraqi communist poet. Muzaffar al-Nawab. 
I got to know him. Uh, and uh, these names, you may not know these names, but in the Arab context, these are people that are, you know, well-known. Um, or people like Dr. Sadiq Al-Azam, who's a friend of mine, kind of really deep uh, Arab intellectual critic of kind of the the status quo in the Arab world. So I was really blessed by having these kind of... Uh, you know, interactions and not just big names. There was a, a dear friend I had who was a modernist uh, painter, uh, Syrian painter who on the side did icons and painted oh. <laughs> Orthodox churches as well. Um, and uh, so, so the work in Syria was very rewarding. And then you would leave work and you had 4,000 years of civilization that you could visit from the best crusader castles in the world, most <laughs> intact crusader castles to the world, to, to you know, Assyrian archaeological sites, um, you know, Greco-Roman cities, uh, Sufi shrines, anything and everything you can think of. Um, you know, the, uh, the uh, remnants of the Basilica of St. Simon, the stylite with the remnant of the pillar which he used to stand on the part that still remains uh was there in syria as well so it was um those are the two of many assignments that i had i enjoyed them all but uh certainly sudan and syria are the ones that i probably uh remember with most fondness although they were all great and you learn if you're open to the world there's a lot you can learn you know i guess speaking from a cultural debris standpoint um it it does, uh, you know. I, you talk about a lot of these these communities, and then some of these uh, these places you've been, and and different, at, at least at that time, uh, surviving structures and so forth. And I, I know that um, that war has had taken its toll on a lot of those things, and it it I I think about what the twentieth and now twenty first century has done the past you know hundred plus years to to take uh, you know, things that, that were quite ancient, not just hundreds of years old, but maybe thousands of years old that are just, um, they're just gone now. And, uh, and, and we will never get to experience again. And of course that's a, that is a, a sad and regrettable thing. And certainly something our, our generations are going to have to answer for, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've been uh, uh, incredibly uh, wasteful with our, um, with our, uh, you know, physical, uh, intellectual, spiritual heritage, um, you know, um, and uh, that I think that's tragic for for modern man. Well, Alberto, I appreciate you being on. Before you go, you mentioned uh, at the beginning as a as a boy that you were a uh, a reader of adventure and horror fiction. So I want you to give us some good uh, some good recommendations beyond. Russell Kirk, even though of course everybody should start with with Russell Kirk, but uh, but but what did young Alberto enjoy that uh, that more mature Alberto still enjoys? That's a great question. Um, I still enjoy it. I'm sitting in my library and I'm looking at it while I talk to you. Um, uh, I started off the first writer I ever read was Jules Verne. And Verne led me to H.G. Wells, and H.G. Wells led me to Edgar Rice Burroughs, mm -hmm. uh, obviously the author of Tarzan and John Carter of Mars. 
And Burroughs led me to that great Texan writer, uh, Robert E. Howard, the creator mm-hmm. of Conan the Barbarian. But uh, writers that I really enjoy uh, that came from that world, uh, Henry Ryder Haggard is a favorite, the writer sure, of yes. King Solomon's yeah. Minds and She. And uh, I think all of his work is worth reading. Uh, his, you know, He's known for those too, but you know, he wrote 50 novels. And uh, those are certainly worthwhile that I, I highly recommend. Following on Howard, um, uh, the Fritz, Le- Fritz Lieber Jr., uh, the fantasy writer, you know, Fafird and the Grey Mouser. Uh, I like those as well. Lord Dunsany, obviously. When it comes to um, horror, you can't do worse than... Um, I mean, you can't do much better than uh, Algernon Blackwood, Arthur Mackin. Um, who else is here that I'm looking at? Obviously, Lovecraft. I, I enjoy Lovecraft. I'm just enjoying uh, reading a... Uh, uh, I, I've had the book for a long time, and I'd read some of the stories, but I hadn't read the entire thing. Uh, he's a Southern writer, uh, pulp, one of the pulp writers of the 1940s. Manly Wade Wellman, and Manly Wade Wellman has uh, different collections of, of fantasy literature, and I've been enjoying in these last few days the adventures of John Thunstone fighting uh, all kinds of devilry and uh, <laughs> uh, the, the works that appeared first in the, the pages of Weird Tales magazines in the 1940s. Sure. Very much kind of a little bit, a little Kirky in there. Uh, John Thunstone oh, is like a, an early version of Manfred Arcane. Well, you will appreciate that uh, Dr. Kirk always, uh, always referred to Annette as she who must be obeyed. So uh, <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> he, he lived out uh, a Trotter Haggard with that, I think. But And the other well, one, I, of course, which, which Dr. Kirk really liked, uh, uh, which is Ray Bradbury, of course. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So he was very, very close with, uh, with Ray Bradbury and, and, uh, writes about him in, I believe, enemies of the permanent things, uh, uh, somewhat extensively. So, well, I very much appreciate, uh, you spending some time with us and I appreciate your recommendations. Um, you have led an adventure filled life that I would, uh, love to uh, hear more about. Perhaps we can get you up here to Kentucky sometime and I can give you a, a little tour of the bourbon trail and you can tell me stories. So. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> well, thank you very much and uh, look forward to talking to you again sometime. Thank you, Alan. Thank you.